Welcome to Centric Lab's first audio mini-series, Planetary Dysregulation, Capitalism and Healthcare. From Centric Lab, we are Josh and Aracelli, and are joined by Guppy Bola and Rihanna Osborne. Guppy is a strategist, researcher and expert in public health. She is also co-founder of Decolonizing Economics, which is building a solidarity economy movement rooted in racial justice. Rhiannon is a soon-to-be doctor, researcher, and organizer, working across access to medicines, climate justice, abolition, and mutual aid. The intention of this audio project is to discuss the links between systems and imaginations rooted in supremacy, the dysregulation of planetary systems, and the poor health outcomes being experienced by peoples who are racialized and minoritized. We also aim to dismantle the individualized health narrative propagated by Western medicine, as it has been used to blame people for their poor health, which helps propagate health injustice. As we go through the audio story, we'll be using certain linguistic baselines. First, nature and all living beings are referred to in a plural form, as we are all ecosystems. We are all plural. Second, is the use of the letter S at the end of words such as knowledges is to signify that indigeneity is not a monolith and holds mutual cultures and multiple cultures, thoughts and knowledges. It also is inclusive of non-human knowledges. This mini-series is across four episodes. In episode one, we focused on definitions within the topic. In this second episode, we will be providing an introduction to the epistemologies of supremacy and how health became individualized. Episode three, explores how capital systems affect healthcare systems and the erasure of indigenous healing imaginations. The series will end with episode four, which will focus on how the right to pollute policies contribute to planetary dysregulation. In this episode, Guppy Bola will be covering the epistemologies of supremacy and how they are used to imagine policies, understandings of health and economies. This will be followed by Rhiannon, who will be discussing the individualized perspective of health, where it comes from, and who it serves. We have been taught that the economy is a system that is separate and exclusive to us and the living world. That it is something benign or neutral, acting rationally or acting under the laws of physics, as if science or rationality were not political. Of course this system is not neutral, especially when it relies on the exploitation of bodies and extraction of nature in order to succeed. To understand what kind of healthcare is needed to halt and transform planetary dysregulation and ill health, we must first begin at the root of the system and the vision that surrounds it. This vision, also known as extractivism, enforces a misunderstanding. Life, which is sacred, is actually cheap and valuable only in service to the economy. What matters and what being means are not ongoing questions, but simply equations. We can use the extractive economy as a synonym for what Bell Hooks refers to as a white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy. This is how we can understand the building blocks of the extractive economy that maintains the system's signature dish, avoidable and unfair ill health, lifetime disease and early death. The building blocks of the extractive economy function by placing a value on our bodies and all other living beings. As Nim Ralph, trans climate justice activist and organiser writes, there are real parallels in the ways that human extract from the planet and create borders and control to police populations in service of profit, 
and the way that humans extract what they need from the bodies of people and create borders between bodies and control us in the service of profit. Many of the ways we understand and categorise people in the modern world were constructed explicitly by Northern Europeans in order to justify their project of global dominance and wealth accumulation. They needed a workforce to deliver that expansion and extraction from the planet, and there were certain types of bodies that were deemed useful or not useful in that conquest. The colonisers assigned value to different human life to morally justify to themselves the degradation and dehumanisation of different peoples in pursuit of personal wealth. The key function of that dehumanisation was to reduce people to bodies and to reduce bodies to vessels of labour or tools of production. Black bodies were enslaved to provide free and forced labour to expand the extraction of resources for Europe, whilst disabled people were deemed unfit as they couldn't produce labour needed in an industrial workforce. LGBTQ plus people were deemed immoral because they weren't able to reproduce for the workforce that was needed for industrial expansion. And so to begin dismantling and rebuilding a system for equity and health justice, we must begin to interrogate the stories that have been fed to us and that we keep telling ourselves in order to make sense of the injustice of sickness. We refer to this worldview as the colonial mindset, as shared in movement generation strategy framework for just transition. In our pursuit of economic justice, it is not enough to campaign for divestment from fossil fuel companies, investment in electric transport systems, or greater access to healthcare provision. Instead, we must understand that the solutions to ill health begin by challenging the cognitive models that drive the extractive economy around us, between us, and within us. Even the way we unpack the word economy has its own roots in whiteness. Eco and nomi derive from the Greek words oikos for home and nomi for management. Or in other words, the economy is the way in which we manage the resources in our home. Immediately, we take our relationships of nature and ourselves as something to be managed, challenging the concepts of indigenous knowledges around relational being and the land as teacher. There is, of course, some very practical and well-documented evidence on the methods that colonisers use to control land, resources and people in order to feed the capitalist machinery. For Britain alone, this looked like the use of military rape, murder and incarceration of 90% of the indigenous populations, the transportation of 3.1 million enslaved peoples from Africa to the Americas, the transportation of 2 million indentured labourers from India to 19 island colonies, the death of two million enslaved people who were thrown from ships, the control and subjugation of 412 million people that was 23% of the world's population in 1913. As Nim's writings reflect, ideas around the other were necessary in order to justify levels of violence, subjugation and manipulation to traditional ways of being. Through establishing this Western hegemony of knowledge production, colonizers were able to exert force and convince Europeans that wealth and resources were fairly acquired and legitimately accumulated. 500 years on, this system of knowing has been so effective that it is good as a raise many infinite ways of knowing our world, and with each generation, global majority folks have been further disconnected from their own ancestral ways of knowing and existing. So how did this system of knowing become so dominant? Quite simply, through two strategies. First, the eradication and ongoing devaluation of indigenous land-led knowledge systems. 
and second, through the investment and support of pseudoscience of eugenics, formed and organised by white Europeans. Eugenics is the pursuit and political practice of creating better humans through breeding, supporting the idea that there is a superior race of people. It was the knowledge framework that determined the values of marginalised bodies based on the social constructs of race, gender, class and disability. Eugenics deployed the language of science to naturalise cultural ableism, racism and homophobia as scientifically valid and politically viable, and to normalise the idea that it was the individual person's bodies that led to their experience of inequality and not the system around them. Britain and European settlers in America were world-class leaders in fueling this system of thinking, established eugenic practices across various colonised territories, and utilising the wealth amassed through colonial exploitation to fund eminent positions in educational institutions and think tanks that led to the direct influence to economic policies of the 19th century and into today. Eugenics deployed the language of normal to cultivate the idea that white superiority and discipline of people into particular appearances and ways of living in order to become the most advanced civilization on earth. These ideas we use to justify very public and problematic statements such as the following from Margaret Sanger, author of The Pivot of Civilization and one of the lead, leading figures in the eugenics movement. Every single case of inherited defect, every malformed child, every congenitally, congenitally tainted human being brought into this world is of infinite importance to that per, poor individual but it is scarcely less important to the rest of us and to all of our children who must pay in one way or another for these biological and racial mistakes. Such ideas are not issues of the past. They lingered and transformed as a normative way to perceive and practice illness and healthcare. For example, biological determinism, the idea that human behavior is directly controlled by our genes or our physiology and is no consideration of the social or environmental factors that influence them. It is central focus of today's public health measures that seek to nudge individuals into better behaviours rather than considering how powerless they are in influencing the drivers of ill health around them. Or dysgenesis, which was a name given to classify poverty as a hereditary condition and was used to rationalise distribution of wealth as a result of biological fitness. And this can be seen consistently through the stripping back of social support to working class communities and the demonisation of working class communities. Adding to this is the ways in which social systems of education and healthcare mirrored the practice of colonial violence. During the 18th and 19th century, hostels were integral sites of controlling black people. Colonizers also argued that black people were immune to pain and disease. Medical research was used to prove that slavery was biologically necessary and that black people were not capable of self-governance, whilst traditional healing practices such as Abeo from the West Indies, were criminalised and dismissed as practices of the dark arts responsible for illness and on the plantations. Similarly, native children were systematically removed from their tribe, tribes, detaching them from their cultures and languages and assimilating them as workers in residential schools, making them therefore contributors to the capitalist machinery. What this also did was transform the spiritual being of indigenous communities through the detachment of the land and converted spirituality in an organised religion that expressed the same power dynamics of white superiority and patriarchy. This has also played out in the way that we have become distinct from nature, created hierarchies between humans and other living beings, and disrupted the idea that, as Eduardo Galliano notes, the rights of human beings and the rights of nature are two of the same dignity. 
So in order for us to truly understand sickness and the social drivers of ill health, we cannot look to just the social conditions in which people live and grow. We must think deeply about the wisdom that can emerge when we connect to our existence outside of whiteness and the power we build when we train ourselves to question the notions and judgments of others. Which is why, for the rest of the series, I invite you to think of the words of Arundhati Roy. Our strategy should not be to confront the empire, but to lay siege to it, to deprive it of oxygen with our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness, and our ability to tell our own stories, stories that are different from the ones that we are being brainwashed to believe. So the way that health is um, constructed as part of the extractive economy of colonial capitalism is very deliberate and serves specific purposes to hide, justify and maintain the extractive economy. White supremacy, class oppression, patriarchy and other ways of othering deem people disposable to capital and individualised notions of health help to facilitate this by justifying exploitation, gaslighting communities, and also providing a hollow feeling of protection for the exploiters or those who are protected by whiteness or wealth or patriarchy. As Aurora Levan Morales writes, quote, the denial of our interrelatedness is killing this planet and too many of our people. And the capture of how we understand health is a key part of this. Firstly, health is treated as an isolated individual phenomenon, put down to your biological flaws or your behavioural faults. This individualization of health is deliberately used to hide the violence of the extractive economy and how it's designed to cause, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, premature death for racialized and otherwise minoritized people across the world. Health is taken from people through the prison and military industrial complexes, exploitative work, the marketization of food and water, pollution, and in all of these ways, health is destroyed to serve wealth extraction. The extractive economy becomes embodied in so many ways, as Araceli has outlined earlier, and the embodiment of the violence of the extractive economy is most concentrated in racialized and otherwise minoritized people across the world. And yet individualised health says it's not the pollution that's killing you, it's your faulty genetics. It's not your job that's destroying your mental health, it's your behaviour. In this way, health becomes focused on a supposedly isolated individual, and healing is limited to repairing their various different organ functions, rather than the abolition of systems which create sickness as the path to healing. Health becomes your responsibility to maintain despite the fact that everything we need to be healthy, food, water, shelter, healthcare, time, is commodified and distributed according to the needs of capital rather than health. Health in the extractive economy is focused mostly on ability to serve capital. And as Guppy touched on earlier with Nim's writings, this leads to particular communities such as disabled and queer people being designated as inherently unhealthy. As um, Guppy has already touched on, and I think we will kind of touch on more when we come to talk about health systems themselves, there is a long and dark history of medicine and its colonial and capitalist ideas of who is healthy and who deserves to be healthy being a key tool of oppression. And of course, this ties into worthiness. To be healthy is to be able to work. To be healthy is a desirable state. 
So to be unable to work is inherently unhealthy and inherently undesirable. But also in one of the many contradictions of capitalism, your work will likely make you sick and the rest of the extractive economy will make you sick and pollution will make you sick. Writing on the way that disabled people are treated as a burden, the authors of Health, Communi- of Health Communism write, pathologizing, quote, pathologizing and criminalizing dependence is a way of taking the blame for poverty and ill health away from capital and the state and forcing it onto the most afflicted. In this system, doctors are the ultimate gatekeepers of health knowledge and lived experience and community knowledge are often denied and gaslit, especially when they highlight the violence of the extractive economy. A recent example being the many, many people who displayed health problems after the Grenfell fire and tried to raise the alarm and the possibility of long-term health consequences. They were completely ignored and now people are being diagnosed with cancer, including many of the firefighters. Centric Lab writes about this dismissal of health knowledge of the most affected people in the report Gaslighting Communities, which I would really recommend. And of course, not only is this vision of health under colonial capitalism deeply individualised and labour-focused, but it is narrow. It doesn't include community, purpose, joy, love, ability to engage with the world and participate in it. An interesting uh, example of many of uh, scholars and activists and communities trying to conceptualise a more expansive view of health is Stridharv and Kataparam's theory in health justice, um, which builds on Nussbaum's central human capabilities for a dignified life. Um, and in this, in his book, he conceptualises health as a constellation of capabilities, including being able to live a normal lifespan, bodily integrity, the avoidance of disease, but also being able to use senses and imagination emotional attachments, meaningful social affiliation, being able to express concern for other species, being able to play, being able to influence one's material and political environment. Other communities, uh, such as the Quechua indigenous community of the Ecuadorian Amazon, conceptualize well-being as completely interconnected and relational through the philosophy philosophy of Sumat Kalsi. As um, some wonderful comrades, Erica, Baj and Amulia, who are part of the People's Health Movement, Ecosystems and Health Circle, write in their article, um, Beyond Development and and Extractivism, New Paradigms for Health, um, published in Science for the People. They write, quote, health in a capitalist society is a product of individual action, submission to the medical industrial complex, subsumption of people into the agribusiness dominated food system, and the pathologization of the physiological processes of birth and aging. Sumat Kause is tied to human beings and their relationships to their communities and lands. Life processes are considered sacred and connected, wherein food sovereignty is an expression of collective health." End quote. A key component of health under um, the extractive economy is the idea, um, the ideology that your health and well-being is separate to the health of other people. You can be healthy if your neighbour is starving, and in fact, in order to, for you to be well, your neighbour must be unwell. The model of health and well-being we are given is that it must be taken. And of course, as Araceli will delve into more later, um, under colonial capitalism, health is separate to the health of ecosystems and the rest of nature is to be exploited to serve capital. In this individualization of health, scarcity is also an essential construct. The idea that there is not enough to go around, that we are in competition with each other. Capital must trick us into thinking that everything, including the foundations of health and life, is scarce, when actually it's abundant but stolen. 
And then in order to justify this unnecessary scarcity, supremacisms are used to deem some people deserving and others not, and reinforce the idea that well-being must be taken, not co-created. And I think as we attempt to break out of some of these ideas, um, I'm just going to share a quote about um, scarcity um, from Ursula K. Le Guin um, from the book Dispossessed. Um, I'm currently obsessed with radical and political sci-fi. And yeah, I love this quote. Uh, So she writes, quote, For each of us deserve everything, every luxury that was ever piled in the tombs of the dead kings. And we each of us deserve nothing, not a mouthful of bread in hunger. No man earns punishment, no man earns reward. Free your mind of the idea of deserving, the idea of earning, and you'll begin to be able to think. End quote. Francoise Verger talks about how, in the Western mind, the ideal white male healthy worker is only possible through hundreds of bodies made unwell as they are exploited for the extractive economy, like the racialized women who clean his office, the people facing violence and dispossession from the mining companies who provide the infrastructure to his office, and the underpaid farmers whose bodies are polluted harvesting the food to feed the workers of the office. She writes in her book, A Decolonial Feminism, that, quote, an extractive economy which wears out racialized bodies depletes the strength of certain individuals designated by capital and the state as fit to be used up, to become victims of illnesses, dehabilitations and disabilities. Wear and tear on the body is inseparable from an economy which divides bodies between those who have a right to good health and to relax and those whose health does not matter and who do not have the right to rest, end quote. To me, this conception of the extractive economy as a sacrifice of some bodies um, relates powerfully to something a community leader said in the film Powerlands about indigenous resistance to extractive industries, which was, quote, we live in darkness so that others can live in light, end quote. In this way, an extractive economy is designed to suck the life force out of people and ecosystems relying on systems of oppression and serving capital. It's designed to do this in as many ways as possible and is completely incompatible with health and healing. It relies on white supremacy, patriarchy, ableism and class oppression to designate the vast majority of the world as disposable to capital, as extractable. And of course, in the end, nobody in the system is truly well and nearly everybody becomes disposable. (laughs) 